Welcome to the Heartbeat Church Podcast. Our vision is for people to live in the image God intended them to be in. For more information visit heartbeatchurch.org.au Over the past two sessions, we have explored two key moments in the final week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus' triumphant entrance into Jerusalem on a donkey. And Jesus' cursing of a fig tree. And his parabolic symbolism of cleansing the temple, which pointed to its destruction by the Roman Empire. And the two unifying elements of these stories is they point to the fact of Jesus Christ as king. That's quite obvious with Jesus' triumphant entrance, that Jesus is coming as a king. But what's not quite so obvious with the cleansing of the temple is only a king had the right to tear down and to rebuild a temple. Now, there's one thing that every king in ancient Israel underwent before they were crowned as king. They were anointed with oil. And this is a process that Jesus Christ must undergo as well. And the account read to us from Mark chapter 14, it appears in Matthew and John. And for those with the keen eye, you'll notice that Matthew and Mark's account is very similar. But John's is different. Matthew and Mark place this event two days before the Passover. And John places it six days before the Passover. What is going on here? Is there some sort of... um, contradictory accounts here? Is there some sort of error in Scripture here? And it's interesting, both accounts, Matthew and Mark, keep keep this woman nameless. John 12 tells us the woman that anoints Jesus is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. And the celebration that they're having is to celebrate Lazarus' resurrection from the dead after four days in the tomb. Matthew and Mark tell us that the unnamed woman Mary poured oil over Jesus' head. John tells us that Mary poured the oil and washed it, poured the oil over his feet and washed it with her hair. So who is right? Did the event happen six days before the Passover, as John said? Or did it happen two days before the Passover, as Matthew and Mark recount for us? Well, the answer is, they're both right. And what do I mean by that? John is chronologically correct. This event happened six days before the Passover. Jesus came into Jerusalem as triumphant king. And John makes it clear, Jesus is anointed as king before he enters Jerusalem as its king. What Matthew and Mark are doing is making a theological and a literary point. Matthew and Mark refer to the Passover being only two days away. And the priests and the teachers are trying desperately to find a way to kill Jesus. 
But they cannot do it in public. They have to do it in secret. How are they going to capture and arrest Jesus without starting a riot throughout Jerusalem? The answer is Judas and his betrayal. See what this account in Matthew and Mark is? It acts like a flashback. It's like a sandwich structure. You've got your first piece of bread, the chief priests and all the law, all the teachers of law trying to work out how to capture Jesus. End the story with Judas betraying Jesus. In the middle of the sandwich is the reason for Judas' betrayal. It's because of Mary's anointing of Jesus as king of Jerusalem, which is something that Judas does not want. Now, with that sort of bigger framework in mind and any sort of apparent contradictions cleared up, we can now explore the significance of this account. In the ancient world, anointing at dinner, t- at dinner parties was quite a common occurrence. Anointing was a symbolism of well-being and peace. But primarily in the Old Testament, anointing was used to uh, pouring uh, anointing of oil over a head was used for the consecration of a king before their reign. Now, in terms of kingship, there are just numerous references throughout the Old Testament of kings being anointed through their reign. And typically it was done either by a prophet or a priest. So say the prophet Samuel, when he when King Saul is called to be king of Israel, he goes out and he anoints Saul over his head with oil. Later on, when Saul fails, God raises up David, and Samuel does the same thing. Now, eventually, when David's son Solomon starts to reign, Zadok the priest does the very same action. He pours oil over Solomon's head. The prophet Elijah does the same with Jehu, and the prophet Elisha does the same with another Jehu as king. Now, what's a pattern you've noticed? The people who do the anointing are either, one, a prophet or priest, and two, which is very important, they're male. See, those roles, they were divinely appointed by God. And this is the great irony of Jesus anointing. Those in authority, the priests and the teachers of the law, they should have been the ones who anointed Jesus as king. They bore the divine authority as representatives of the people to serve in the temple. They are the ones who have the right to anoint Jesus as king. And this is the ultimate irony. A woman with no religious authority takes up the prophetic and priestly ministry and anoints Jesus as king. Now, we know the identity of the woman as Mary, the sister of Lazarus. But there is a very, very important literary reason why Matthew and Mark leave her nameless. It illustrates the complete and utter failure of the leadership Compared to Caiaphas, the high priest who lives in his palace in Jerusalem, Mary is a nobody. Yet she is the true representative of Yahweh. She fulfills that prophetic and priestly role. Mary, the unnamed woman in the eyes of society. 
And while the priests and leaders are in that fancy palace in Jerusalem, plotting the demise of Jesus, where do we find the king of Israel? In Bethany, at the Mount of Olives. And if we remember from last week, Mark's Gospel Matica creates a contrast between Jerusalem and Mount Zion and the Mount of Olives. Here is just further proof that Jesus is moving us away from Jerusalem and pushing us further and further to the Mount of Olives and his presence as the true temple. And most importantly, Jesus is in the house of a man called Simon the leper. Now, one would assume that Simon the leper would no longer be a leper. For we could not imagine Jesus Christ being with a man who has leprosy and not healing him. But again, Matthew and Mark are making a very, very important literary point. Simon is not called Simon the man who had leprosy. Simon the one who Jesus cured of leprosy. No, his title is Simon the leper. He is defined by his leprosy. As a rabbi, Jesus Christ is no doubt well versed in the commands of the Torah. And when it came to leprosy, Leviticus chapter 13 from verses 45 to 46 stated very clearly, anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. And the point Matthew and Mark are making is to illustrate that Jesus as the anointed king is anointed in the house of a man who is completely and utterly defiled, who should be outside the city living alone. And again, it's pointing us to Jesus as the true temple. For lepers found cleansing from their defiling skin disease by going to the temple, by offering a sacrifice and being washed. Jesus is the only human who can breach the unclean laws of the Torah and not be defiled, but instead provide cleansing, healing, and forgiveness. And as Jesus is reclining at this meal, enjoying the celebratory feast, Mary comes in with this alabaster jar made of pure nard. And alabaster is a soft stone material. And she breaks this jar and pours the oil over Jesus' head, body, and feet. Now there's this incredible boldness to this action. For Mary has interrupted the mealtime occasion. And when the rigid hierarchy of ancient Israel... Gender roles were very defined. Males would spend time eating and feasting together. Women would be away. Male and female roles were clearly defined. Their boundaries were known. The sense Mary has subverted the traditional gender roles in Israel. And this is exactly what Jesus' ministry has attracted. For Mary is not the first woman to subvert the norms of ancient Israel culture to worship him. 
One author, Susan Miller, notes that women play this incredible role in integrating significant changes in how followers of Jesus are to worship him. Think of the woman with the bleed, who on touching Jesus breaks the laws of purity. Yet Jesus does not rebuke her. The Syrophoenician woman who is seeking healing from her daughter from demon possession foreshadows the role of sending the gospel to the Gentiles. Mary herself disrupting this meal. Not only broke cultural norms, but she does something even more profound. As she is pouring this oil and it gets to Jesus' feet, she uncovers her hair, which in act was just an incredible taboo. Only, only unmarried prostitutes would have their hair exposed, for only a husband was meant to see a woman's hair. Mary degrades herself to wipe Jesus' feet and to anoint him as the coming crucified king. And this is a pivotal moment in the mission of Jesus Christ. And what's more interesting is the positive role women are portrayed in the Gospels. Regardless of how many times Jesus foreshadowed his death to the disciples, no matter how many times he told them directly that he was going to Jerusalem to die, the disciples again and again failed to grasp its significance. The purpose of Jesus as the anointed one, as the Messiah, as the Christ, is to go to the cross. And Mary understands this reality. And in anointing Jesus as king, she doesn't just use some any old oil she has lying around. It is a costly act of sacrifice. Nard was an expensive oil. And that's why they would, the ancients would keep it in an alabaster jar. That was the only way to maintain its purity. And what's even more profound is this, oh, this bottle of nard was most likely a family heirloom passed down from generation to generation. The action of Mary, it's uncalculable. Richard Balcom, he argues that for the original gospel readers, on hearing this account, they would have immediately clicked that this was an anointing of a king. And the gospel narratives have gone to great lengths to illustrate the royalty of Jesus. And when we read this narrative in the context of the buzz around Jerusalem, it makes sense. For Jesus has triumphantly entered Jerusalem as her king. He has cleansed her temple, not only as Yahweh in the flesh, but as the king who has the right to tear it down and to rebuild it again. And this anointing is the third, or depending on the gospel you're reading, the first sign to tell us Jesus Christ is king. And that is what this holy week is illustrating. He is a king with a very, very unique kingship. Now, despite the importance of this action, despite what they're witnessing in front of them, the disciples once again misunderstand what they are seeing. For in Judaism, care for the poor was at front and center. 
particularly at the time of the Passover. There was an expectation that you would give to help the poor to assist them. And the value of this nut is estimated to be around 300 denarii, about a year's wages. When the average worker only got one denarii a day, it's a lot, a lot of money to seemingly pour on Jesus and waste it. And that's what the disciples think. They think that Mary has just literally wasted this oil by pouring it upon him. For surely it could have been used better to help the poor. And their misunderstanding of this action is rather colourful. Mark in particular uses a word for their rebuke, which means to snort or roar. Disciples weren't just a little bit, oh, she shouldn't be doing this. They were furious at what Mary had done. They were disgusted with her behaviour. However, as we know, Jesus comes to her defence. And his reasoning is that you will always have the poor among you, but you will only have me for a limited time. That's the interesting response. For Jesus is not indifferent to the needs of the poor, but it's about an appropriate symbol. The disciples have ample opportunities to care for the poor should they need to. How there's only a limited time frame where they will be able to honour Jesus in this way. Frederick Danker argues that Jesus is not contrasting himself with the poor. Instead, Jesus is betraying himself as the ultimate poor person. Now, what do I mean by this? Now, in the, in the Psalms, the righteous sufferer is usually betrayed as being poor. And this is seen in Psalms 21, 34, 41, 68, and 108. And Psalm 41 in particular has this strong link in shaping the crucifixion or the passion narrative. For Psalm 41 speaks of the psalmist's enemies wishing he were dead, whispering together, imagining the worst. And even the psalmist's closest friend, someone he trusted, who he shares bread with, has turned against him. And you can see the correlations here between Psalm 41 and the Passion narrative. With the religious leaders plotting, Judas' betrayal, the disciples' desertion. And Christ's lonely and forsaken death upon the cross. By suffering, Jesus in the word of the psalmist has become the ultimate poor person. The ultimate sufferer. But interestingly, the psalm, psalm 41 begins with a blessing on those who care for the poor. Now the disciples have suggested that the nard should have been given, should have been sold, and the money used to give to the poor, which would have meant a blessing upon Mary. Now, in defense of Mary, what has Jesus said? She has done a beautiful thing for me. Mary has demonstrated kindness to the ultimate poor man, Jesus. And her blessing is seen in that her name is to be remembered when the gospel is preached throughout the world. She is to receive a blessing for her care for the poor represented in Jesus. 
commentator Joel Marcus notes that when Jesus says this will be done in memory of her, what Jesus is doing, he's tapping into funeral language, remembering a person who has died for their good deeds and actions. And Jesus is discussing this in the context of his death and burial. However, Jesus is not speaking of a memorial for himself, but Mary. Now, it's a very, very subtle allusion. But Jesus is saying that he is not going to require a memorial to be read out for him. How does Psalm 41 conclude? It concludes on a high. From verse 12, we read, Because of my integrity, you uphold me and set me in your presence forevermore. The poor man is vindicated. He will be upheld and will get to dwell with Yahweh forevermore. The psalmist's enemy is so certain that he will remain sick, that he will never get up from his sick bed. Their sickness, what they say, seemed to be a sinful curse. But the poor sufferer will triumph. And what would be the purpose of remembering Mary's action if Jesus' body was still in the grave. That is the point. Jesus is going to die, but his body will not remain. Nevertheless, this anointing as king, it is to prepare for Jesus' death. At Jesus' baptism, he was anointed as priest and empowered by God's spirit to serve as his firstborn son, to redeem the world. And Jesus' anointing is illustrated one Sabbath morning at his hometown in Nazareth, where he picks up the scroll from the prophet Isaiah and turns to chapter 61 and reads these words, that he has been anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. How is Jesus going to fulfill this anointing? How is his kingship truly manifested? It is his death. And while we know from John's account that Mary covered Jesus completely and wiped his feet, the reason why Matthew and Mark only tell us that Jesus' head was anointed to represent his kingship, but they also use a very, very interesting Greek word, maruso instead of the normal word to anoint. Now, interestingly, in the Septuagint, or the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, they use this word meruso to describe the anointing for burial of the dead. However, there's an even subtler reference in the Septuagint translation of Psalm 133, which states how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity, it's like precious oil poured down on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. That word for pouring down that oil, which is really strange imagery, pouring oil down Aaron and the oil going down his beard and into his robe. It's also maruso, the 
Gospels here are making subtle references throughout the Old Testament. And Psalm 133 describes the blessings of covenant fellowship, when all of the Israelites are living together in unity. And this strange reference to the oil flowing down Aaron, it recalls that time when all the nation, when all the tribes of Israel were gathered around the tabernacle and Moses anointed Aaron as high priest. And the psalm ends with another strange imagery of Mount Hermon-like fertile dew coming all over Mount Zion. The purpose of the oil and the Jew imagery is to symbolize the blessings of heaven poured out upon God's people. And this psalm is end-time or eschatological, for it points to a time where there will be unity and eternal life on Mount Zion, the holy city. Elizabeth Platt notes another eschatological implication of Mary's anointing. Psalm 23. While the psalmist is anointed with oil at a table in the presence of his enemy, and Jesus is only in the presence of one enemy, he is about to face them. And how does Psalm 23 end? The psalmist will dwell forever in the house of Yahweh. And how are the blessings of Psalm 41, Psalm 23, Psalm 133 to be, Psalm 23 to be fulfilled? It is in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We already said Jesus' kingship is utterly unique. And despite repeatedly announcing it, only Mary is able to connect his kingship and the cross. His anointing is an anointing to die. And by Mary's actions, I'm not only pouring the nard on Jesus' head, but his feet and the humble action of wiping them with her hair. She gives the ultimate poor man everything she has, which foreshadows the action that Jesus, the ultimate poor man, will do. As shortly he will get down on his hands and knees and scrub the feet of his closest disciples, even the very one who would betray him. It's a radical gesture. And this is why it is immortalized in the pages of Scripture. This is why it is to be proclaimed wherever the gospel message goes out. For it points to an even greater humbling an even greater anointing. And this anointing leads to new life, the coming of God's Spirit, whose arrival was often symbolized by the pouring of oil. As Mary pours that nard over Jesus, it's also a parable to the coming of God's Spirit that will be poured down from heaven, death to the old world, and the beginning of the new one. The fulfillment of all the promises in the Hebrew scriptures. In Matthew and Mark's account, the narrative concludes with Judas Iscariot going off to the chief priests to betray him. And we remember the dilemma that they had. How are they to arrest Jesus without a riot instigating 
The answer is Judas. And despite happening several days prior, Matthew and Mark emphasize that it is this anointing. There's the impetus for Judas to betray Jesus. For Judas recognized that following his anointment, Jesus Christ is now the Messianic King. And that Jesus Christ would be leading an uprising against the religious leaders. Judas just failed to consider. It wasn't a traditional uprising. It was an uprising against sin and death and evil in this world. But now the religious leaders with Judas' betrayal, they have the means to remove Jesus without instigating a riot. Now what's interesting is when Judas agrees to betray Jesus, he is paid 30 pieces of silver. This is no accident. This is the value of a slave that had been gored by an ox. The contrast in values is profound. Mary gave everything to anoint Jesus. Judas sees Jesus' value as no higher than a slave. This is also ironic. For what did Jesus say? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve as a servant, as a slave, and to give up his life for many. And in giving up his life, Jesus became the ultimate poor man of the Psalms. It's very interesting. In the rabbinic teachings at that time of Jesus, there was the belief that in the new world, there would be an absence of poverty. With the arrival of the new creation, with the arrival of the new creation, poverty would cease to exist. This is what the poor, righteous man has done. Poverty is alleviated. There is an abundance for everyone. Jesus was anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, to the righteous sufferer, that they would be vindicated, that they would be redeemed, that they would be restored, that they would share in the abundance of Yahweh's provision. And in, from that passage in Isaiah 61, just a few verses afterwards from what Jesus quoted that Sabbath morning in Nazareth, it tells us, from Isaiah 61, verse 6. And you will be called priests of Yahweh. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. And the role of Jesus as the ultimate poor man is picked up by the Apostle Paul, where he states in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty might, we might become rich. And part of this message in us becoming rich was the action of Mary becoming poor to, to honour the ultimate poor man. Her example was meant to be immortalised in the proclamation of the gospel. For as Christ said, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, 
what she has done will be told in memory of her. And this powerful image of women usurping their traditional roles in worshipping Jesus is not only evident in the prior to the Holy Week, but as the Holy Week progresses, what do the disciples do? The disciples forsake Jesus during his arrest, trial and crucifixion. Who remains standing at the foot of the cross the whole time? When the disciples are hiding scared, who are the first to arrive at the tomb on Sunday morning? Who are the first to see the risen Jesus? Who are the first to be entrusted with the news that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead? It is the women who faithfully followed Jesus Christ. And this self-giving action of Mary points to a self-giving act, the self-giving act of Jesus and foreshadows his resurrection and the hope of the gospel, the coming of the Holy Spirit and the new life he brings to us. And friends, it is that action in the house of Simon the leper Six days before the Passover, we are to remember whenever the gospel message is proclaimed. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Heartbeat Church podcast. For more information about services, ministries and sermons, visit heartbeatchurch.org.au.